The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Here are a few things you might not know about the People's Republic of China. Its military is training 10,000 pigeons to serve as a backup communication system in case of war. They've been used here for decades. There are thousands of words blocked on China's version of Twitter because they're considered politically sensitive. Among them are Candle, 1984, and Winnie the Pooh. And finally, China has a court system with a conviction rate of about 99.9%. It's this last fact that led to the biggest protests in Hong Kong's modern history. Bigger even than the Umbrella Movement in 2014, when tens of thousands of people took to the streets. This is the sound outside Causeway Bay Metro Station in early June 2019. Thousands of people are milling around beneath adverts for the latest iPhone and Father's Day presents. Suddenly, a chant strikes up. No China extradition. No evil law. Hong Kong is a semi-autonomous part of China, and it has its own legal system. We'll explain that later. For now, all you need to know is that Hong Kongers were protesting a bill that would allow Beijing to extradite anyone it wanted to be tried in mainland courts. Given that 99.9% conviction rate, people weren't keen. But the protests were about much more, too. Fighting for democracy, freedom, and preserving Hong Kong's unique way of life. The demonstrations had been going on for months, but that hot, sticky day in June 2019 was when it became a movement. Up to a million people of all ages, all backgrounds showed up. It was huge. One of the most popular slogans was Ga Yao, or Add Oil, a very Hong Kong way to encourage someone. Today, all of that is illegal. The streets of Hong Kong have been silenced. And it all comes down to one innocuous-sounding piece of legislation. The National Security Law. I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious. People are being arrested and journalists are being oppressed. The threat is very real. You never know who will report you, who will denounce you. Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control. It was traumatic. A lot of people were scarred by that. And I was one of them. For those who tasted police brutality, for those who sniffed tear gas, they will come back and people will rise again in the future. I'm Sophia Yan, China correspondent for The Daily Telegraph. And you're listening to Hong Kong Silenced, a show about a city turned upside down. 
I'm standing by Tiananmen Square, where China's version of a parliament meets annually to rubber stamp into law proposals from the Chinese Communist Party. And this happens in the Great Hall of the People, a sprawling stone building just across from me. There are a few tourists in the area, despite the rain, posing for photos with the portrait of late leader Mao Zedong that hangs right here in the square. It's early evening and rush hour traffic has started. This is the spot where in 1989, hundreds, possibly thousands of pro-democracy demonstrators were shot dead by the Chinese military. There are a lot of wonderful things about China, but its human rights record is not one of them. I've been reporting on this country for a decade, so I wasn't surprised when last year I found myself writing a story about international condemnation of a sweeping new bit of legislation passed by China's parliament right here in Tiananmen Square. It concerned Hong Kong. This is a grave and deeply disturbing step. This law risks seriously undermining the autonomy of Hong Kong. We deplore this decision. Shortly before midnight on June 30th, 2020, the law of the People's Republic of China on safeguarding national security in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region was implemented. Suddenly, it was illegal to oppose the Chinese government in the street or in parliament. You could also be punished for saying something critical on social media or even to a colleague in the cafeteria. You could be arrested for wearing black, having a yellow sticker on your backpack, or for just holding up a blank piece of paper. Hong Kongers were never consulted about the national security law. But in one fell swoop, it changed everything. I'm going to take you into the heart of the story to find out what life has been like for Hong Kongers since the law was introduced a year ago. You'll hear from a barrister, a civil servant, a nurse, and a teacher. We'll introduce you to the local councillor still fighting for democracy and the mom who's worried for her kid's future. You'll meet the activists and politicians who have had to flee into exile to avoid prison. It's a story with more dark twists and turns than most could have expected. This is about China, a rising global superpower how its government views ideas such as democracy and human rights, and what happens to those who challenge it. It's also about the unique people of Hong Kong and their hopes and dreams as they enter the toughest period in their modern history. Ready? Our story begins with those extradition bill protests in June 2019, when up to a million people were taking to the streets. I want to bring in my colleague, Nicola Smith. She's the Asia correspondent for the Daily Telegraph based out of Taiwan. We were both reporting on the ground in Hong Kong during that crazy summer. Nicola, can you describe what the mood was like in the city around then? In the early summer, there was a sense of idealism. The mood was upbeat. There was a lot of optimism almost in the air. There was a kind of hope that their voice might actually be listened to this time. For a lot of young people who I spoke to, they kind of felt like this was their last stand. Otherwise, they felt that they were just going to be trampled by the authorities, by Beijing, by this creeping authoritarianism that they were just trying desperately to hold back. In the middle of that summer, in June, when the extradition 
bill was supposed to be passed. Thousands of people went to LegCo to stage a protest and to actually physically try and stop the bill from going ahead. This actually worked, but that's when things turned violent for the first time in Hong Kong. We're about to hear from Sarah. She was in the crowd. I was there like since 7 a.m., I guess, with some of my friends. But like for the whole morning and even sometime in the afternoon, the logical was surrounded by a lot of people. I would say an angry crowd. But then, you know, in the afternoon, the whole thing just got messy. Thousands of people surrounded the logical and trying to force the government to stop the reading of the bill, the anti-extradition bill. And there were conflicts, there were clashes between the protester and the police. Things got really ugly and the police fired tear gas and rubber bullets. Everybody was like kind of like panicking and they, they were running from scene. And that was my first time like, like, you know, experiencing tear gas. It felt like my skin was burning all over my body. That was quite threatening, you know. I remember that day very well. It was a real turning point because after several months of peaceful demonstrations, that was the first time the police were properly violent with the protesters, young and old, families and students. But if Beijing meant that show of force as a deterrent, it didn't work. A massive sit-in outside LegCo began with thousands gathering to peacefully protest every day. Nicola was reporting there. I remember that day turning up and it was another hot, humid day. There were a lot of young people. They would spend hours sitting outside the LegCo, chanting protest slogans, listening to activist speakers singing songs. And the atmosphere was quite festive. There was a buzz in the air. I was trying to find people who were willing to chat to me give me a little bit more than just a sound bite. And so I approached one young woman, asked her if she'd be willing to talk, and she said she was a bit uncomfortable to do so, but she called over her friend, who was instantly very chatty, and she seemed very open to expressing her views, and, and that person was Sarah. I felt like the part that I could contribute was to tell people outside of Hong Kong what's happening in the city. Like, that's all I'm most capable of. Sarah said she'd been coming down every day since the violence of the week before. It gave me a sense of security. I have no idea how to explain that, but it was really difficult for me to just stay at home. It felt like the city is going down and I couldn't just stay at home and watch all this shit happen. So what do we know about Sarah? What kind of person is she? Well, first thing to say is that Sarah isn't her real name. And that's true for a lot of people in this podcast. In fact, if you don't hear a last name, you can assume it's a false identity. That's because they risk being charged under the national security law simply for speaking to journalists like us. 
They could end up in prison for years, even for life. A lot of people we wanted to interview for this podcast are already behind bars. So we've had to be incredibly careful to protect identities. We gave Sarah a Western name because a lot of people use Western names in Hong Kong, and that comes from the British colonial era. So people have both Chinese and Western names. Tell us about Sarah. Is she some kind of hardcore pro-democracy radical that poses a threat to China's security? Sarah's not a hardcore radical. She's just an ordinary Hong Konger. She's in her 20s. She works in an office. She doesn't especially like her job. She lives in an apartment with her mum and her sister. She says that her mum's her favourite person in the world. She thinks I don't like her, (laughs) you know. On her days off, she likes to sleep in and watch TV in bed. I would say I'm quite a lazy person. (laughs) She loves chatting about video games, going to the cinema, having drinks with her friends. Oh, also I love music shows and I love concerts. And she is someone that from a very young age always read the news. I paid a lot of attention to what kind of things is going on in the city. So I take it she was there in a heartbeat when the protests began in 2019? Exactly. Although she always tried to stay away from the centre of things when it got violent. She just didn't feel comfortable. If I don't run fast enough, if I'm not strong enough, I would be the burden of other people. So I usually, I I wouldn't be there. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of Hong Kongers could empathize with that. Because from June 2019 onwards, things got ugly and fast. Remember LegCo, the local parliament building? Well, eventually on July 1st, 2019, the anniversary of when Hong Kong was returned to Beijing control, a couple of hundred protesters got frustrated with waiting around and broke in. They were angry, really angry. They tore portraits of political leaders from the walls, smashed furniture, and graffitied over an emblem of Hong Kong. Their demand? To make it more democratic, to reform a system inherited from the British colonial government that many believed should have changed over time, but never did. They were so angry because they had been asking for years without success. It was controversial, even within the pro-democracy camp. But that was just the beginning. That summer saw a shocking attack by a pro-Beijing mob in a metro station and the city's busy airport shut down by protesters. Chaos. But that extradition bill we mentioned earlier, the one that kicked off this whole movement, it still hadn't been fully withdrawn. So people kept protesting and the police kept responding with increasing force. So it was just another night, another evening, that massive number of young people stayed in the streets. And when it gets darker, the police started to disperse the people. That's Ted Huey, a well-known pro-democracy local politician. We'll be hearing lots from him during this podcast. And I remember another massive number of police officers was there, riot police in full gear. And they were holding different flags. The black ones uh, signifying that they will be using uh, tear gas. And also the blue ones 
uh, declaring that the scene was a scene of crime, of uh, illegal assembly, and they would use force when possible. They were also uh, using loudspeakers, warning people that they shouldn't be in the streets because it was an illegal assembly. So it was quite intense at that time. The government will formally withdraw the bill in order to fully allay public concerns. By the time Chief Executive Carrie Lam announced the withdrawal of the extradition bill in early September, it was too late. The momentum was unstoppable. There was widespread distrust of the police and the protesters' demands had grown. Their slogan now was five demands, not one less. Included in them was an inquiry into police brutality, an amnesty for arrested protesters, and universal suffrage, something Hong Kongers had been seeking for decades. Hong Kong society was becoming visibly divided, pro-Beijing blue and pro-democracy yellow. Restaurants, shops, even taxis were declaring themselves one or the other. Families were being torn apart. Brian is a teacher in his 30s and the eldest of two sons. He's part of a tight-knit family that would meet regularly for dinner. Usually they rarely discuss politics, but the tension erupted at a very important family event. It was at my late grandma's funeral when everyone in the family, including relatives coming from mainland China, went to a Chinese restaurant for a post-funeral feast. On the TV, there was news footage of a march that was happening that day. The scene depicted the protesters smashing the facilities at MTR metro stations and blocking the roads. My dad found this too extreme and too violent. My brother didn't see the problem, but my dad said they should be arrested. My brother disagreed with his view and they started arguing. My brother poured a cup of tea on my dad and then my dad almost flipped over the table. I pulled my brother out of the restaurant to calm him down. After a while, we went back because we needed to finish the meal, but we went home separately that evening. After that night, my little brother came home occasionally for dinner, but while we were eating, he and my dad had basically zero contact. They didn't talk to each other. They just said hi and didn't mention politics anymore. This was not something you could be on the fence about. Everyone was affected in some way. Coming up after the break... We tell them about the tea guests. We tell them medical workers are being arrested. We tell them the police stopped the ambulance men. We tell them that, but they did not take any action. We meet Florence, a nurse who provided first aid for the growing number of people being injured in the protests. Don't go away. Hi. 
Hi, my name's Venetia Rainey. I'm the writer and producer of Hong Kong Silenced, which means I've spent months working out exactly how China's tightened its grip on the city over the past 12 months. It also means I get to give a voice to people who've been silenced, people like Sarah, Ted, Brian and Florence. But doing justice to their stories, as I hope we've done on this podcast, takes time. And that's where our subscribers come in. Without their contribution, we can't make shows like this one. So if you'd like to support what we're doing and to get unlimited access to a huge range of journalism on foreign affairs, politics, sport, business, culture and more, go to telegraph.co.uk slash silenced, where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph. After that, it's just £2 a week. That's telegraph.co.uk slash silenced or click on the link in the episode description. This is the sound of Hong Kong on a normal week. There's the hustle and bustle of the city's markets where customers barter. The whoosh of the subway, people rushing to and from work. A stunning cityscape framed by mountains and the ocean. Hong Kong, a busy urban center spread across a cluster of islands where business always comes first. But that wasn't the case in 2019. The city was still in turmoil. The extradition bill was technically dead, but the pro-democracy camp wanted more. Among their demands were universal suffrage, a basic right they had been promised ever since Britain handed the former colony back to China in 1997. They also wanted the police to be held accountable for repeatedly using excessive force. The government refused, describing the protests as illegal riots that threatened its stability and security. This is a police statement from autumn 2019. Roads at as many as 50 locations were damaged or obstructed by rioters. Our society has been pushed to the brink of a total breakdown as rioters went on a rampage in residential neighborhoods and university campuses. And in some ways, they were right. There were regular protests in the streets that meant students often couldn't go to school. Streets were constantly being blocked off, and business was being disrupted. But there was also still widespread support for the protesters' demands. Hong Kong seemed to be on the verge of collapse. I think definitely the political tension during the protest really changed the relationship between the government and the society. That's Florence. She's a nurse at a major hospital who often went to the protests to provide medical assistance to anyone who needed it, but was careful never to get caught up in the frontline clashes with police where she could have been accused of bias. For her, going to the demonstrations to help wasn't a political statement. It was her duty most of the medical worker, we are not active protesters. Although we may join a peaceful protests after office hours, but most of us, our role is staying in our profession and try to help injured people. She was distraught by the level of police brutality she saw, with officers even targeting doctors just for doing their job. She was even more upset when the government ignored attempts by doctors' unions to raise their concerns. First of all, there is police getting into the hospital and search our patient. This seems violate our practice. Uh, many protesters get heavily beaten. 
So as a doctor's group, uh, we raise our concern about that. We tell them about the tea gas near hospital. We tell them medical workers are being arrested. We tell them the police stop the ambulance men try to send injured people to hospital. We tell them all that, but they did not take any action. It's October 1st, 2019, China's National Day, and protesters are on the march again. During a small scuffle on a side street, a policeman shoots an 18-year-old boy at close range after he apparently tries to hit the officer with a stick. Luckily, it enters his shoulder, but it could have been fatal. Florence's doctor's union released a statement condemning it, only to be criticized. Florence found it deeply frustrating. For groups like us, professional groups, when we come out and talk, we try to um, not mention our support to the protesters. We try to uh, focus on the issue, on the professionalism, on humanity, that sort of issues. But even when we try to discuss it, from those point of view, we'll be attacked. The middle ground had completely disappeared, and with it, any hope of compromise. The apex of what had become a weekly running battle between police and protesters came in November when police laid siege to two major universities where hundreds of young protesters were holed up. One was the Chinese University of Hong Kong, or CUHK. Florence was there. I remember the reports that the police has fired more than thousands of tear gas or other kind of bullets during that few days in Chinese university. As a healthcare worker, I saw many injured protesters. There are some get injury by the bullets, the arms, the face, the head, eyes, and so on. The other was Polytechnic University, a nearly two-week fight that became known as the Siege of PolyU. Over both incidents, dozens were injured, hundreds were arrested. Students threw Molotov cocktails and fired makeshift weapons at the police. They were met with choking tear gas, a barrage of rubber bullets, and water cannons trapping them inside. The scenes that emerged shocked an already weary city. Sarah was one of the millions of people glued to her phone, watching it all with mounting horror from afar. What happened in those days at CUHK and PolyU? It was traumatic. A lot of people were scarred by those days. And I was one of them. Like people I knew, they were actually in there. They were trapped. And, you know, on those days, like, at some point, it actually felt like it was the end. I felt like I would never see them again. Because the way the police was acting, it was like they wanted to kill everyone on the campus. I think it has become a shared trauma between a lot of young people on that day. Not just young people, you know, everyone who participate in the movement. At this point, you might be thinking, this sounds pretty bad. The city has essentially been shut down for months, and this seems like the kind of violence you normally see in war zones. Presumably, most people no longer support the pro-democracy protesters, right? 
Wrong. At the end of November, the city held local elections. They're normally a humdrum affair where neither side dominates. But in 2019, pro-democracy candidates won almost 90% of all seats, fueled by a record turnout that saw many people voting for the first time ever. It was an unarguable message to Carrie Lam and to Beijing. This city supports the protests. And yet, nothing changed. Despite the success at the ballot box, the protests ran out of steam. The months of endless battles with almost no results had taken their toll. In 2019, over 4,000 people had been arrested and 1,600 people had been injured. The violent sieges of CUHK and Poly U in particular weighed heavily on the pro-democracy movement. On top of everything, there were rumors of a deadly new virus coming out of Wuhan, China, stirring up dark memories of the SARS pandemic in the early 2000s. But some people were determined to keep fighting. On January 1st, 2020, New Year's Day, another march took place. It drew tens of thousands, everyone from families to students to older couples. But it soon followed a familiar pattern. Police fired several rounds of tear gas and used water cannons to disperse the crowds. It descended into chaos. I'm going to bring back Nikki at this point. Nikki, what we're hearing now is footage you shot on your phone. Can you take us back to that moment? It got to the stage at protests that we were much more on edge, that more festive, optimistic atmosphere of the summer had completely disappeared by that point. You would go to the protests with your helmet and your gas mask and protective gear. And so we expected January 1st to be a, a big protest and sure enough, it was massive. News started to come through on Twitter. There had been some kind of altercation. Nobody really knew who started it or what happened. But the police had suddenly called off the march. And I remember thinking at the time that that was impossible, that there were so many people. That day I'd interviewed grandparents, I'd interviewed people with little kids. I was worried it was going to cause a crush. Out the corner of my eye, I saw this commotion forming. There was a crowd and, and police officers were running over. There was a man with a loudspeaker and then I realised that it was Ted Huey, who's a pro-democracy legislator. Nikki, how would you describe Ted? Ted comes across as very likeable and he's popular with young people. He didn't look like a protester. He looked quite preppy. He had his pullover draped over his shoulders. And I remember thinking that it just looked kind of out of place. He was basically in this standoff with this officer who was shouting back at him. And so I remember being quite shocked that this was a, a member of parliament and the, the police were being very forceful with him. So as usual, the riot police and protesters were 
of course having conflicts. So I was standing in between them and talking to the police, and I was pointing out the fact that the people are not using violence. So the police shouldn't be shooting the young people at all. So I, as I was talking with my mini microphone. Police approached me and was yelling at me, and suddenly took off my goggle and sprayed me right into the eyes in short distance. And so I turned around. It was painful, but I I held myself, and so I put the goggle back on. And then police、uh, took it off the second time and sprayed me, and all the way. And for the whole day, it's very hard for me to open my eyes again or see very clearly. Even after everything that had happened, this was disturbing in terms of the level of police brutality and the clear disregard for any sort of accountability. This was a politician who was doing nothing. Lots of people were filming it, but the policeman was never punished. And this day, January first, twenty twenty, it spelled the end of the protests as we knew them. Especially once the coronavirus pandemic took hold over the next few weeks. Chinese officials are advising 11 million people at the centre of an outbreak of a new virus. Coronavirus outbreak, which has killed 107. A short time ago, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak an international public health emergency. The organization. So at first, Asia, and then the whole world went into lockdown. Hong Kong was at an impasse. The violence Hong Kongers had seen and experienced couldn't be erased. People's views on China's role in the city, whether for or against, had hardened significantly. Still, with no one out on the streets and COVID-19 to worry about, you'd think that would have been the end of it. But then people started hearing whispers of a new law set to be passed at Beijing's annual parliament session and imposed on Hong Kong without consultation—a law that would change everything. It was called the National Security Law. No details were conveyed. Actually, the Hong Kong government didn't even know the details of the law before it was officially announced. That's Nathan Law. He's another person we'll be hearing from a lot in this podcast. He remembers discussing the rumors with some fellow activists. We were so nervous because at first we didn't know the details and contents of it. So we were just like thinking about what's the possible effect and consequence of the law, and of course we had always been named as the so-called national enemy or troublemakers in Hong Kong situation. When Nathan describes himself as a national enemy, he's not exaggerating. A well-known pro-democracy student activist, he became the youngest ever lawmaker in Hong Kong at the age of 23. That's him winning his seat in 2016. You might assume Nathan comes from some kind of wealthy Hong Kong political dynasty. Not quite. I'm born in a blue-collar family. My family's had not been talking about politics at all when I was growing up. He's actually not even technically from Hong Kong. Yeah, I was born in Shenzhen in 1993, and I moved to Hong Kong in 1999 with my mother to reunion with my father, who had been working in Hong Kong. 
And my father was a builder. My mother was a cleaner. We had been living in public estate basically for all of our life. Economy is always not stable. There are difficult times, but I'm glad that I、um, managed to get through it. What did your parents think of your activism before? Well, at first, of course, they were so worried and they opposed that because they just want their sons to have a more prosperous life,、uh, more resources. They were opposing my activism, but、um, soon they realized that I'm too stubborn to change, <laughs> and they gradually accept the fact that I'm going to be like this. Nathan's knack for activism marked him out pretty quickly as a leader within the pro-democracy movement and as a troublemaker for the government. But he's also just an ordinary guy in his mid twenties. He likes playing football with friends, for example, and he loves spending time with his family and his two cats, which he rescued from the street. <laughs> one is Papa, and one is fourteen. They're so lovely. Yeah, yeah, fun names. Nathan was studying abroad at Yale during the second half of 2019, but by May 2020, he was back in Hong Kong. He was in the office of the pro-democracy party he runs, Demosisto, when he and his colleagues got the news: China's parliament had passed the new national security law. Details were still scarce, but the message was clear: any sort of opposition to Beijing would soon become illegal. The net was closing in. I realized that, given. The hostility of the law is impossible for us to continue to、uh, speak up and continue our international advocacy work in Hong Kong. When we talk about like sanctioning to Chinese officials, holding China accountable, these are definitely falling into the red lines in the national security law. I had been the center of the political storm in Hong Kong for a few years, and I was aware that I was talking to the Chinese Communist regime. So that is a high possibility that if I continue my advocacy work, then I could be locked in jail for years or decades. Given that the maximum penalty of the national security law is life imprisonment, he realized it was decision time. Either he stays in Hong Kong to continue his activism and waits for Beijing to silence him by throwing him in jail. Or he tries to leave his home country, not knowing when or if he will ever be able to come back. So、um, I decided not to turn silent, but to flee out in order to be able to speak freely. He had no idea if it would work, if he would even be allowed to leave the city. But he decided he had to try. Next time on Hong Kong Silenced. I didn't know whether I would be stopped at the border, whether I would be brought to court immediately, whether I would be enlisted in the blacklist from the Beijing government. So I was extremely nervous. Nathan tries his luck at the airport. The national security law is introduced, and Hong Kong enters uncharted territory. You've been listening to Hong Kong Silenced with me, Sophia Yan, China correspondent for the Telegraph. 
This show was reported by me and Nicholas Smith. It was written and produced by Venetia Rainey and produced in sound design by Leanne Coyle at Whistledown Productions, with additional audio gathering and translation from Jasmine Leong and Santa Fong. It was mixed by Tom Brignall. The commissioning editors were Theodora Leloudis and Jess Winch. Follow this feed on your podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the series, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this show.